Sister's back at uni, parents are taking them there, I'm home alone, so what do I decide to do? Record a podcast. Yes. Yes, I'm recording a podcast again, uh, because oh, it's so much fun. So much fun. Anyway, um, today what I want to talk about is all of the reflections that I've had this week, going over a lot of the research that I've been looking into. Now, this week I haven't looked as many podcasts, but I've read lots and lots and lots of papers. So, uh, some, of, some of these points are going to be a little bit out there, they're going to be quite deep uh, and and. and in necessary understanding, uh, but we will see where we where we go. So the first point that I actually have is uh, it's actually from my course or my course or the course that I did on networks on network thought neural networks and my, my thoughts on it. So if you haven't seen the video, it was a, a course uh, on brilliant. The brilliant, the brilliant, the platform, and I decided, you know what, I want to learn about neural networks, i.e., machine learning, deep learning, that sort of stuff, because the perceptions of Bayes' theorem, the perceptions of past experience, prior beliefs, etc., 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 all impact how we potentially learn, think, uh, and expect we should do things. And neural networks is obviously a big part of that because it's how the brain potentially works. Because uh, we don't know it for fact, we can just hypothesize, and it's it's very very likely that it's true. So, okay, neural networks. How does that work? You have inputs, and then that goes to an output. There are uh, sections in the middle, so you may have an output for the the first layer, and then the second layer, and then you get the actual output in the end. And for human reactions, you'd get the inputs, and all of those inputs are the information that you would get through the body. So that's senses, so your sight, your smell, hearing, and and then all the other information that you would gain through looking into wherever you are, wherever you are. So all of those senses give you not just one piece of information, but loads of information. And then you have your prior beliefs and prior experiences also impacting all of those pieces of information. So you may see something, but because you've seen, maybe you're looking at, so when I'm looking out the window, for example, I'm looking out the window, I can see lots of things going on, but I don't know exactly what's behind some of the objects that are out there because I can't see it. But through prior experience and being behind them and inside them, I can roughly see in my head what's going on. So I have a visualization of what's going on, even though I can't actually see it. And that's other information that's going into the decisions that I'm making. Not necessarily, obviously, being able to see inside the shed because the shed is shut, um, but being able to predict other things into the future. And that information can also be used, again, looking, uh, considering Bayes' theorem, can also be used to give you an output. And that output may be an action, maybe a decision, maybe a choice, uh, maybe a concept or an idea or a thought. There are lots of different outputs that it could be. And what we do as humans is we create loads of varying outputs to try and update our current beliefs, which could be impacted by prior beliefs and moving forwards that can impact actions. And one of the studies that's specific to, to me at the moment in my mind is pathological fatigue. A study went over pathological fatigue looking at it from a Bayesian hypothesis uh, model essentially and what they basically went through is you have the body receiving these pieces of information, lower levels of thinking, higher levels of thinking, metacognitive levels of thinking and then it moved towards fatigue. Now the rest of the model could I think be changed into other areas, other things such as learning or thinking or any other experiential experience. <laughs> yes, that, 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 I was like, experiential, no, that word's not going to fit there, I'm just going to say experience. So it, it could just be any other experience. And for those that are, are curious about the paper, it's going to be in the Mose, I'm going to do a, a deep, or oh, I've done a deep dive on it in the Mose. Um, but the, the idea is that you have the body in, in like bringing in information, then there's a lower level thinking of there is information that's coming in, but it's not really going to impact what's going on. So, for example, in this example, we can use, uh, for example, in this example, wow, great English, Danny. Um, for example, fatigue, 
when you start exercising, information is going to come in that you are moving around. So heart rate goes up, blood pressure increases, etc, etc. But that's not really fatigue and that's lower level thinking because there's information coming in, but it's not really adding that much of a difference. Then as that increases, whether that's increasing over time, increases intensity, uh, or you, you just decide to do it for longer, uh, it requires a little little bit more thinking because now the, the signals essentially are stronger, you have some delayed signals as well coming back in, and you start thinking about prior experience and what you felt like when you felt like this before, and that is therefore higher level thinking because you're now using prior experience to update your, your thinking around how you're feeling and the information that's coming in and those prediction errors. So I predict I'm going to be able to do this uh, and that becomes true. Those prediction errors or and if it's not true, it's a prediction error. Uh, those prediction errors therefore give you uh, uh, this feeling of, mm, okay, something's not normal because you're exercising. Your body isn't in a normal state. It's slightly increased or decreased depending on what obviously you're doing. In this example, it would be increased, like heart rate's increasing. Um, and your body goes, okay, we're not normal, we're not in normal state, there is something wrong, there is a prediction error. I should be feeling like this, but we're feeling like that. This could be fatigue. And that's the, theoretically anyway, uh, the feeling of fatigue. The experience of fatigue is those prediction errors in that higher level thinking. Then after time, after a, a considerable amount of time, depending on obviously the exercise you're doing, the intensity you're doing it at, metacognitive levels of thinking mean, oh, okay, prior experience actually now says that at this point there was some issues, i.e. you started decreasing in performance, you felt really hot and sweaty, uncomfortable, uh, and you really needed to do something, so your body starts doing things like sweating and, and reacting to whatever it is that you're doing to try and get back to baseline, that's allostasis, and your body goes, hmm, okay, let, let's, let's Let's bring it back. Uh, and eventually your body will say, hold up, let's just stop. We need to rest. And that's that's a constant feedback loop, process loop. Uh, and in the model, they, they predict three loops, one between metacognitive and higher, higher and lower, and then lower in the body. And then there's some other bits at the top, but we don't need to worry about that for this example. Yes, it is about fatigue, but I'm going to try and apply this elsewhere because the neural networks, which is how I started this conversation in um, in the brilliant course talk about inputs and outputs and this input and output analogy uh, in neural networks and how it basically works is how we predict humans human minds to work but because humans are using so many feedback loops from different experiences the interaction between prior beliefs current information is much much easier to work in our brains because we have all of the information and from what we can tell at the moment from my understanding anyway is our brain works far better than a computer does something i do want to mention here though a computer doesn't forget information it, it keeps it so it continues using that piece of information when it does do some learning so ai learning and it educates itself about what we what we should be doing what we shouldn't be doing and, and goes through experience it's the same as humans when we when we're updating our experiences and and forgetting getting rid of unnecessary information but what machines do not so well is being able to make uh, essentially like connections between other things and that's where our conceptual understanding our, uh, our not necessarily knowledge but our ability to connect different points at different experiences and different times all over the place is much better than machines because machines have to be programmed or they have to try and figure it out themselves and that's why machine learning is is quite difficult and it's not as far as humans and humans brains are far better at the moment and that that connection that knowledge that ability to 
create connections between different concepts, ideas, prior beliefs, expectations, and all the other elements of psychology is what makes our brains so useful. Um, and the next point actually comes from Twitter. It was a Twitter response from Rolnick, uh, who is the author of a book that I've got down there, one of the very few books I actually own. And he spoke about, so I, I questioned motivational interviewing. Right, And motivational interviewing is basically a type of interviewing that's used in counselling or working with other individuals to try and help them be motivated, sort of, uh, but it's mainly trying to get them in a, in a positive mindset, moving towards development rather than destruction in their actions. And I, I asked Rolnick on Twitter, you can see the Twitter thread, I, I will link it in the show notes, uh, but I asked whether listening and, and different things like that would be a skill to learn and, and asked about some of the connections you could possibly make. Now, Rolnick didn't understand what I was talking about because I used some digital tools and other things in my in my example, but what Rolnick did say really caught my attention. He said, listening is a verbal skill to connect with someone. Now, there's a couple of things there to unpack. Verbal skill, verbal skill is listening. That, that that caught me off guard. I wasn't I wasn't expecting a verbal skill to be listening, but it does make sense when you think about it because you need to be able to listen to be able to. Uh, well, someone needs to be able to listen to what it is that you're saying for what you're saying to be understood. Say so, like with deaf people, if you say something, they're not going to be able to understand it. They need to read your lips. So their listening is different. Their listening skill is different. Their their input essentially their consuming information skill is different from yours and i think this is an interesting comment because when when you're consuming information you could be listening but you could be listening with different intentions and you could be listening with different biases and that is why listening as a skill is so different because there are different ways to listen some people listen with an open mind some people listen with a very closed mind some people don't bother listening. They don't really pay attention. They just get the cliff notes. Other people listen with full intent and spend a lot of mental energy trying to understand or grasp or just be able to repeat what it is that's being said. And then there's the, okay, I'm listening to something and I'm trying to grasp it, i.e. put it in relation to other things that I already know or other things I potentially might want to know in the future and then bring those things together. And this is a conversation with someone else and for for what Rolnick is talking about in his example, uh, is the the counsellor, the the mentor, the tutor, the psychologist, the, the coach, the teacher, the peer, the parent, whoever, that person listening is listening to the information and trying to get a, an understanding of what that person is feeling in that time, what the purpose of their words are. And that, that is a verbal skill is extremely interesting. And the other point about this that I wanted to unpack is skill to connect with someone. Now, how do you connect with someone? I think there is an element of empathy. <laughs> there needs to be an element of empathy, of feeling what they feel, or at least understanding or grasping an element of what they feel to be able to give a response that is, one, respectful, but two, useful, because we can say, oh yeah, I understand what you're feeling, but we don't really understand because we don't have the same perspective. We don't, we're not in their shoes. We can have an understanding from our own experience or our own perceptions of what they're feeling, but we don't fully understand. And that is something, uh, when I was going through my therapy, that really irritated me when the therapist said oh yeah i understand what you're saying no you don't <laughs> no you don't you're not in my shoes but you can ha but they can have a perspective and obviously at that time i was very irritated by a lot of people um and i, I didn't want to hear what they had to say as soon as they said oh yeah i understand what you're saying in my mind i was thinking no you don't no you don't understand at all uh, and 
what motivational interviewing is suggesting is to connect with someone isn't to say, yes, I understand what you're saying, but it's to listen to what they're saying and to grasp what they're trying to give you through through the conversation. And that is where in linear conversations online, through podcasts, videos, uh, blogs, anything like that, it's very difficult to have an element of intimate... In, uh, Wow, motivational interviewing. It's very hard to put that in there because you're not responding to anyone. You're not being able, you can't listen to anyone. I can't listen to someone watching a video and then react like in the video because obviously I've pre-recorded the video. It's not possible. Uh, the same with blogs and the same with everything online. There is no way to react to, to, to a comment. So this is where when communicating information over a, a linear uh, science communication medium, it's, I think it's very important to predict what questions may come up and predict how people, excuse me, how people may respond to the information that you're sharing. Uh, and that, I think, is a way of listening without listening. But I don't know, and this is why I, I brought this point in, because I was thinking, well, if listening is a verbal skill to connect with someone, how do you connect with someone without that that interaction between, okay, I've listened to you and now I'm responding. If there is no, I'm listening to you and responding, the responding bit, or the responding bit is so delayed, i.e. another video or somewhere else, if that response isn't uh, timely, how can you connect with someone? And that, I think, comes down to the medium at which the video is given, and that may relate to some of the other information that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, but the next point I want to bring up is concept mapping. So neural networks relates to how we connect with people with the information that we go in and out and concept mapping is a way that we can potentially remember information easier or remember the the concepts the connections between the concepts the connections i.e the neural networks uh, together now neural networks is an illustration in um in, in computer in computer science and tries to map the information processing uh process in our minds and concept mapping is a way to build that ourselves so it, it's part of retrieval practice depending on how you do the concept ma mapping but it could be retrieval practice in network tools that could just be creating the concept map by making backlinks uh, but the concept mapping it's not better than retrieval practice itself just by doing practice tests but it is a form of retrieval practice and if you need to recreate something and treat the concept map as the practice test then yes it's just as useful so that is where i think the misconceptions of how to do concept mapping and how to sort of combine different skill sets together to help learning uh, can be can be argued backwards and forwards online but concept mapping, when you are doing concept mapping or when you think you want to do concept mapping, there needs to be an element of retrieval practice. But what it can also do is create connections and allow better grasping, deeper grasping and understanding of the topic or the idea or the piece of knowledge, priori knowledge or transferable knowledge into your mind. So that when you're moving forwards, because you've now encoded this somewhat into short term memory and potentially long term memory, if it's repeated over time, uh, you can then bring bring and use that information into any decision you make. So thinking about the uh, neural networks, you have the input, which could be uh, any information, then you build up a concept map, which could be the middle pits, uh, the middle, middle areas of that network, and then you have the output. Now that concept map could be a prior belief because you've built up this concept, uh, this connection between different concepts in the concept map, which has educated your belief because it's maybe the, the first time you've seen it and that's the only element of knowledge that you have around it. So it's a trustworthy belief that you can uh, use in your 
their education and then maybe other information comes in that updates that belief so it may change or it may be supported either way that belief is then updated that can then educate the decisions you make later on because of the concepts that you try to combine together a working example of this is note-taking pkm a lot of people that uh, consume this content are interested in pkm personal knowledge management and when you are trying to connect different concepts different notes different theories you're going to update your your thought your thinking your thoughting your thinking about something so maybe an example being para gtd uh, and what's the one lyt like uh, linking your thinking para just para projects areas resources and archives uh, gtd getting things done there are lots of other frameworks as well that you can sort of put in there and you learn about them you have a belief about them and then because you've seen this other thing maybe you actually update your belief and you have a different framework that you want to use and that concept mapping the ability to go okay this does all of these things this does all of these things that does all of those things if you're listening to this i'm moving my hands all around the place um if you're watching this you can see uh, but you have concepts so you'll have nodes so the different points and then all the other subsections this is essentially a mind map um and you'll have all the other sections and you'll start finding links so maybe in para and lyt you see a link so you create that concept map and it becomes one big map instead of three individual maps and we do that with all the information that we bring in that was a very small example we do that with all the pieces of information that we bring in with concept mapping and if we try and recreate that concept map from memory i.e retrieval practice about a concept an idea a belief to educate an action we could one help remind ourselves what we're actually thinking about because of the connections that we've made two because concept mapping is a type of retrieval cue because it helps us remember things because it is cueing us to think about something in specific in particular um it can help us with remembering something that we didn't think of in the first place when we're working through something which is why when you work through a new project concept mapping could be useful so you don't miss things out uh, and the other point would be that when you are concept mapping, you are bringing links together. So you are creating those links in your mind. So when you are making a decision, you're making a decision on prior links made rather than prior guesses or assumptions made, which could be better or worse, depending on your approach uh, to, <laughs> to moving forwards in whatever action or decision it is that you choose to make. Now, linking all of this to learning. This is where I'm going to move into some of the academic papers that I've been reading through. Uh, tackling misconceptions in introductory physics using multimedia presentations. Now, this was from Veritasium. I'm going to be doing a video on uh, Veritasium's PhD research uh, soon because I'm going through all of its papers and misconceptions because it's very interesting, also related some, to some of my research. And this paper basically suggested that misconceptions help learning. Now, what does that mean? Misconceptions being you think about something in one way, but what someone is saying is you're actually thinking about it wrong, or you're overlooking something, or you're misunderstanding something. And essentially, it's challenging your beliefs. That, that's basically what it is. Um, a misconception and bringing attention to a misconception when teaching uh, or learning in either case, bringing attention to that misconception or misinformation is essentially challenging your beliefs. Those beliefs built up from the connections that you've made either in concept mapping or just in the way that you think from prior experience. And that is going to be part of the neural network, part of the Bayesian model. Uh, and what you essentially you're doing in questioning the belief is making someone go backwards and think Okay, what are the justifications for my belief? Is this true? And you have to think, you have to actively think. It's not a an obvious response, it's not an immediate response. We need to critically analyze what we are doing, why we are doing it, why we have made that decision to believe this thing, and that 
thinking, that active thinking is cognitive load. We could relate this to cognitive load theory and go down that path, but I don't want to yet. Um, I might not in this podcast, but if you're familiar with cognitive load theory, you'll understand that, um, if you're not familiar, sorry, uh, you'll need to understand that cognitive load essentially is how much effort, mental effort, you put into doing something. The more you put into doing something, um, the less energy you have later on in the day, and the more effort you need to put into other things, such as distractions or removing distractions, the less effort you can put into thinking about that topic. So something they found, they, something that they found in other studies related to this misconception of learning is that if there are other things in the environment, i.e. in the video, so maybe there's loads of sound going on or loads of colours, loads of jokes, loads of other things to think about, those misconceptions aren't challenged, those beliefs aren't challenged as much because the uh, by novice learners because the information that's being shared, so the noise from the sound or the, or the, the vibrance of the colours or jokes being said, or the information that's being shared is too complex for the novice learner, misconceptions won't be challenged because they don't see it as a misconception. They just see it as something they don't understand. And then they have a choice. Do I care or don't I care? That, that, uh, that's essentially what it is. And if they don't care enough to drown out all of that other information and really challenge their misconception, then they won't. Which is why the extraneous load, which is what cognitive load theory calls it, uh, needs to be fairly reduced, which is what they found in other studies. Uh, It needs to be fairly reduced for novice learners. For more experienced and expert learners in that topic, the extraneous load isn't that uh, distracting because they understand the the base fundamentals of things that are being spoken about. So, uh, giving an arbitrary example, if there there is a a misinterpretation, if there's there's this A thing, there's this A belief, novice learner looks at A belief Belief, they d- they understand number one they don't understand two and three so to challenge this belief they need to challenge what three is but an expert learner or somewhat expert learner again same belief but they understand one two three four five they, they have a full understanding of one two three four five so they don't need to spend that much information that much effort thinking about three because it's it's a well grasped uh, information so the information that's being shared through the misconception in the video doesn't have to be that, uh, that that explicit because they have an understanding so the sound isn't going to interfere as much that's the theory anyway uh, and then misconceptions why why is misconception so useful because it makes it makes people challenge the justifications behind the belief and if there isn't a justification then they need to go okay do i need a justification about this belief if i do maybe i should probably learn this thing Uh, and then you start asking questions and what misconceptions basically are challenging beliefs are uh, they are triggers to get people to think critically or at least ask questions about something which is the start of the natural learning process Uh, now the natural learning process is a is an article that i explained i believe in the last podcast and will be in the mo's um Natural learning basically suggesting that we don't need a higher education to learn stuff. Uh, it's just all we need the higher education to do is help us educate, uh, or educate or give us the ability or skills to create directed projects that are somewhat useful. We, we can learn whatever we want. It's just we need some, some goals, some projects, some targets, some, some reasoning, some point to learn the thing. Because when you, when you ask a five-year-old, oh, can you go play this game? They will learn the game and they will learn it like inside and out they will play at loads they will find out all the all the different things if they enjoy the game of course um and you don't have to teach them how to do it you don't have to give them lessons they just go do it there's a project go complete the game they do it uh, and the same thing in other projects when people are interested about sport or science or 
tech. They are interested. They go and do the thing themselves. They, they go learn. They find resources online. They do what they need to learn. They don't need a higher education to teach them that, but they need higher education to give them guidelines, give them projects, give them goals, targets, support in some of the harder areas. Uh, and and that's, that's the argument of the study and misconceptions. Give you a route to start that conversation, which can build up into a project. Um, the next couple of points are related to videos. So one of them was uh, Ali Abdul's video. He responded to a TikTok about study techniques. And the other one is uh, from Adam Grant's TikTok. Uh, is that TikTok? No, Twitter. Adam Grant's Twitter and him talking about uh, reading. And and both of, both of these points, so one of them is a YouTube video responding to TikToks and the other one is uh, Twitter. And both of these points lack what I think is uh, critical thinking and research. I recognize, I do recognize that Adam Grant's tweet is very short. So it's very hard to bring context in. And he did share a paper, which is on my reading list. But the the assumption and the conclusion that he has drawn from it uh, basically said that speed reading is bad. And speed reading is bad in some contexts. In other contexts, is not. And relating back again to prior beliefs and prior knowledge and expectations and concept mapping. If you understand something well enough, then reading the same thing over and over and over again is going to be boring. It's not going to be fun. If it's not fun, you're less likely to pursue it. If there are no misconceptions challenged, no beliefs challenged, you just go, okay, yes, I agree, moving on. And speed reading or jumping through things in reading allows you to get through that and two points that could bring interest. If I read another paper about the relative age effect, I'm going to get bored because they all say basically the same thing. So I'm not going to do loads of research on the relative age effect because I have a deep level of understanding about the relative, the relative age effect and how it works. However, if a specific concept of it is challenged, uh, then I'm going to read the paper. But I'm not going to, uh, but I'm not going to slow read the whole paper, because the introduction, the meta-analysis, uh, the literature review, I will probably speed read because I know the information, because I've been doing it for so long. So this is where I think the context in the tweet needs to be said somewhere, uh, which which isn't. And I think that's, um, that's something that part of social media, depending on the platform, uh, needs to acknowledge and recognise. And in a similar note, in Ali's video, he speaks about lots of study techniques, and he doesn't give any context as to whether the study technique is good or bad or indifferent. And the, he reacts to the videos as if he knows the answers. And he doesn't know the answers. He has research and has experience. Some of the research is very outdated and some of the research isn't applicable in any way because it's rat research and rats don't think or work the way that we do. So it's very much, a, hey, there's a correlation between this thing over here and that thing over there. That's great. It's a correlation. It doesn't mean you can give that advice to other people. And if you do, I think it should be explicitly said that this probably won't work in the, the like for these people, these types of people, those types of people, because the way that humans think, the way that humans act, i.e. information processing, network thought, works differently in rats as it does to humans. If it worked the same, rats would be able to make the same conceptual connections as we do, uh, which they can't, uh, not to the same extent anyway. And these these caveats, these nuances uh, in explaining what it is, like the, the communication to the general public, I think need to be more explicitly said. Uh, and the reason I say this is because one, 
I'm going to say it. Ali said the Feynman technique is really good. And Ali obviously has a prior belief about the Feynman technique, which is fine. And he hasn't updated that belief at all um, since he made his, his first videos about it. And if he has gone to challenge it, I'm not sure what research he's gone to find because, like I said in my video, there isn't much. There are three papers. One of them is in Chinese, which I can't read, and two of them argue against one another and are really poor studies. So there's no research backing that. There is research backing an element of the Feynman technique, like I said in the video, I don't want to go on a rant on it, um, but he is saying the Feynman technique is good, and he is supporting this TikTok that is also saying the Feynman technique was made after Feynman, which it wasn't. So he's reinforcing false information, and that is confirmation bias. It, yes, I'm going to call him out on it. It's confirmation bias, uh, and this this is where I think research in science communication. What is the justification for sharing this information? And this is where um, misinterpretation is shared all over the internet because research isn't factually checked by everyone, uh, and they use transferred knowledge rather than their own knowledge uh, or priori knowledge of some sort. Priori, priori knowledge being facts or things that. Uh, can't be true, uh, can't can't not be true. <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, like two plus three can't can't not be five. Like it has to be five. Two plus three has to be five because it's the way math works. Um, it's the, the same thing. Like I'm wearing a red T-shirt, but I can't at the same time be wearing the same blue T-shirt in the same period of time. It's it's just not possible. It's either red or it's blue. It can't be both. Um, that's priori not priori knowledge uh, and and facts. So. The fact is, Richard Feynman didn't come up with the technique. That is a fact. That's priori knowledge. And how I can justify that is going back in time, looking at the research, looking at what people have said, what he said, where it actually came from, and the facts say that he didn't make it. That's priori knowledge. That's knowledge I've gone to find out. Transferable knowledge is what a lot of the people are doing online. They're going, oh yeah, that person said this. I will use that and say this. They're citing someone that isn't citing priori knowledge. And this is where fact checkers like myself and other researchers really go in to find where where it came from, where the actual thing came from, um, and is the is the interpretations potentially misinterpretations of that information true or not? And these nuances, these these misinterpretations of information being shared, are one of the causes and issues with a lot of the communication that goes around studying, learning, educational science, and not just in educational science, but all over the place. I don't know when the video cut off, but a very popular video with study techniques and all of this um, misinterpretation that goes on is very testing video about um, studying styles. So I, I'm a visual learner, I'm an auditory learner, I'm a kinesthetic learner. They are misconceptions that have been grounded in education, grounded in our thinking because of a study that said that suggested something and that suggestion was then applied in frameworks and models and theories and was spoken about over time and then it was it was justified by these people talking about it without actually looking at the prior knowledge and where it came from. And then when you actually research all of these different study techniques and you know, study techniques, all these different studying styles, learning styles, uh, when you actually look at the research, they say, no, no, you're not a visual learner or you're not a kinesthetic learner. You learn more like that potentially in this environment than other people. But that's that. You, maybe your interest is in something that requires more kinesthetic learning skills. Then you're going to be more of a kinesthetic learner because that's what you're doing more. You're, you're more practiced at something. Uh, and this is where... For me, the irritation around sharing information uh, can be a little bit too too shallow, too shallow in depth. How do we then challenge that? Well, that is again where higher learning education sort of comes in, and this is where misconceptions, which is what um, uh, Veritasium, Derek Muller, is talking about, 
bringing light to misconceptions, bringing light to beliefs, challenging those beliefs, those prior beliefs. Once And once you've challenged those prior beliefs, then give people goals, targets, motivations, purpose, a reason. Give them a reason to go and learn about the thing to start with. And then they can start challenging their beliefs and potentially up- updating it. Because one video saying, ah, this belief, uh, this belief you have isn't right and because of A, B, C, D isn't going to change people's minds. Changing people's minds takes a long time. But what it does do, it gets people thinking. Uh, or that's the that's the t- target anyway. The target is to get people thinking about whatever it is that you're talking about. Um, and it gets to challenge assumptions, challenge thoughts, challenge priority knowledge, uh, rather than transferable knowledge, which I think is important when we are looking to learn any lifelong learner, I think should be able to recognize that quite clearly. Um, now, the next point is remembering and forgetting. Experience, memory, encode, encode. Uh, and then remember, this is basically what it is. You do, and same with neural networks. You have um, an input, which is an experience. You have the first level, which is short-term memory. You then encode it, goes to long-term memory, encode it, and then you try and remember that, which is prior beliefs and educating yourself on that. And that's remembering and forgetting. That that's all it is. And what I find mildly irritating with some of the videos that I have seen and explanations that I have seen on this is they've gone into so much depth explaining how encoding works, how short-term memory works, how long-term memory works, how prior beliefs potentially work, how retrieval practice works, how recognition works, the difference between recognition and retrieval, and there are so many conversations to be had around it, but I think they're overcomplicating what remembering is. Remembering is looking back into your memory and trying to retrieve it. That's all it is. Learning is putting something into memory. Uh, and if you lose the memory, you lose the learning. So you either need to relearn it, i.e. re-put it back into memory, which could be from a new experience or from long-term memory that you don't have great access to. Um, and that's what learning is. Learning is putting it uh, into a place that is retrievable for you, uh, potentially like without cues, but if you don't have cues, then better learning etc um and then forgetting and forgetting is is that element it forgetting is that point it's okay i've learned this thing great and now i've forgotten it and you've forgotten it to a point where you need a new experience or you need a retrieval cue to help you get it from long-term memory either way it requires a new experience because you've forgotten you've forgotten something so you need an experience to trigger that memory again to learn it that, that, that's all it is learning is remembering something and forgetting means you need to relearn it again that's all that's all memory is yes there are loads of other complex elements to it but that's all you really need to know which is what most people need to know um and the the video the reason i like this video is the videos from crash course it's quite an old video actually um i can't remember how old the video is but it it talks about implicit memory explicit memory gives loads and loads and loads of effects um but still stays true to okay this is the thing so there was a misconception put at the beginning of the video um well there there was an experience put at the beginning of the video that created intrigue because of the misconception uh, about your assumption of the end you'd think oh yeah yeah it's going to be true and then it wasn't you're like what sorry uh, and then you try and then you listen to, to try and understand how you were wrong or how your prior belief was potentially uh, incorrect and they use all of the examples and the effects in the video to justify and explain why uh, and you come away thinking hmm, okay cool cool yeah that was good and it was a very simple video very simple video but just had loads of terms in it now we, we could analyze the video and say that mm, well there were lots of extraneous 
those in there, a novice learner, may get confused. People that don't like definitions or get confused with definitions or all the words on screens were too much for them uh, may had triggered them and, and they'd left the video or maybe someone just assumed the, the right answer at the beginning of the video and they thought, oh, I already know this and moved on. There are loads of things that could have happened, but I thought the video was a very nice way of summarizing memory using lots of terms, uh, technical terms, in, in a way that was like... Here's the term if you want to know it, but you don't really need to know it because it means this. And I thought that was a very nice presentation of how things were done. It was it was a way that I think I'm going to look at moving forwards for myself anyway in videos. How is someone explaining the concept term? Are they explaining it in, an, in a relatable environment that I can say, okay, yes, I know that experience. That's what that effect is. Okay, that's that's good. That's good to know. Uh, moving on. Or are they just saying, here's a com complex word or term and then going with it. Uh, and that's something I'm going to try and uh, challenge in my communication. I don't know, maybe you want to do the same thing. Um, the next point is play and guided play. <laughs> and this, this is a, a big a big discussion in the sports coaching world, play and uh, learning, play and guided play, because play versus deliberate practice, well, practice versus play is a discussion. And I've, I've gone through a couple of papers in the Mo's uh, this month about it. And deliberate practice... Guided practice, parent-guided practice, coach-guided practice, player-guided practice, then player-guided play, uh, coach-guided play, indirected play. All of these different things ha have interactions. Some people say it needs to be deliberate practice. You need to do nine hours of deliberate practice to get anywhere in the sport or activity. And other people say, no, you need to play more in the activity when you're younger so that you're interested in the sport. And there is certainly a balance to be struck. But a lot of, a lot of people in this discussion say either deliberate play, deliberate practice, um, or delib deliberate practice or play do different things which they certainly do and they will lean towards depending on their their goal outcome they will lean towards different different methodologies essentially if you're more performance focused deliberate practice is more likely to be the target if you are more participation focused play maybe more of your target to start with anyway uh, and then deliberate practice will come in and this is where um coat i think it's 2007 his paper um uh, starts talking about deliberate practice is needed to develop performance but play is needed to bring in enjoyment elements psychosocial elements of sport <laughs> like you need to have fun in what you're doing before you can learn something and i think this relates to natural learning misconceptions like having like enjoying the critical analysis of a misconception uh, and also relates into neural networking and prior beliefs because your prior belief of a sport if it is your prior beliefs is just oh, okay if i turn up to training and we're going to do this drill for this amount of time and it wasn't very fun your prior belief is going to be negative with the associated emotion so that could impact your future actions to training if you turn up to a training session or turn up to a lecture or activities and they do the same thing and it's boring and your prior experience says it's boring you're not going to do it uh, and that is where i think education is very deliberate practice directed it's a here's a lecture let's listen to the lecture moving on and prior belief says this is going to be a boring lecture and you turn up prepared to do something else 
<laughs> Some people will turn up to lecture, I, I experienced it quite a lot, they turn up to lecture with games loaded on their computer for the lecture. And they turn up the next lecture with a different game that they've downloaded because they know they're going to have time to play it. Or they turn up to the lecture with work they want to do in for, for another lecture in there. So they have planned homework to do in the lecture because their prior belief says that this, this deliberate practice is going to be bad. Uh, and yes, deliberate practice can be good, and it can be a positive reinforcement, but a lot of the time deliberate practice requires a lot of energy, a lot of re repeated practice, uh, and it isn't necessarily as fun as play. Directed play, guided play. Uh, and this is where psychosocial elements of training and learning need to be applied uh, sort of together. There certainly needs to be a balance between play and deliberate practice, depending on the context you're coaching in, context the learner is in, and context of their perception of their prior beliefs. But how do you measure that? You can't. That is where, as, as an individual sort of teaching or coaching or trying to help other people learn, you need to really work on a one-to-one -one basis uh, to, to get a, a truly accurate representation. Uh, but from a learner's perspective, I think what a coach, teacher could be doing is help them understand what they need. So if someone is more interested in performance, they can do the deliberate practice. If someone isn't that interested in performance, they can do the play. Or when someone gets bored of the practice, they can play. When someone gets irritated by the play and they need to learn more, they can do the practice. And I think what teachers and coaches need to try and help individuals do, same as the article that was talking about natural learning in higher education, what I think uh, teachers and facilitators of learners learning should do is help people understand the projects and the goals that help them get to either practice or play to move them forward. Give them give them the environments, give them the constraints, the affordances to learn their own way in deliberate practice, deliberate play, but give them the tools to do that. That's what I think we should be doing anyway, rather than saying, hey, do this, or hey, do that. Uh, and that's essentially what guided play is. Guided play is giving people the environment to play but with guidance. So maybe there is constraint, maybe there are only certain affordances given because of constraints, uh, or maybe you've given them something that they need to do, which uh, you could argue is a constraint, but maybe you've given them something that they need to try and do, a goal, a target for the play session. Uh, now, the, the very last point here, it wasn't actually uh, something from external, it was a combination of lots of things that I was seeing, and I, I have decided to alter the way that I'm putting papers in my uh, Obsidian. Previously, I had loads of information about papers in my Obsidian, and for those that are unfamiliar with Obsidian, it's my note-taking app of choice. Uh, and you can see all of my public notes on online. But the, the, the way I used to put notes in was I had the published authors, and I had all the metadata in there. And I realized all of that information is already in Zotero, and I can access it quite easily by going through the link which I have to the paper. And what I was missing was I never actually had the reference in the page. So when I wanted to reference the paper, I couldn't. Like, I needed to go through the link to get to the paper online to then find the reference, or I needed to go to Zotero and then get a, a BibTeX export of the reference. So I've decided to add the reference into the page. Um, I've also managed, I've also decided to change the published date out of the page because I've added an alias instead, uh, which I'll get to in a second. And then I've also taken out the authors because most of the authors uh, only do one or two papers, uh, or I, I only experience the author like one or two times because I'm not that interested in most of the research. It, normally it's a secondary or tertiary research paper to support something that I am interested in. So it's just a, a one-off experience with them. So I've taken those out as well. Uh, now the 
the aliases that I've done for the page because how I name the page is I name the page the title of the article but when I'm going through and and looking at pages and I see these massive long names of titles of articles I I can't be bothered to read through them all uh, and a lot of the time when I'm familiar with an article I refer it to as Coat 2007, Gill 2021, um, whatever <laughs> like a name plus the year it was published and that's what i've done for my aliases so when i look at uh for example my kanban board of my modes i can just see muller 2008 muller 2012 gill 2021 i'm not looking at the board these are just from memory and i can see it and i'm like okay what was that paper talking about 2008 muller was talking about um uh distinguishing between different modalities of learning and then 2012 was the uh i actually i can't remember the 2012 paper was and that's something that i would need to have a look at um if i cared that much um but that's that's something i'm going to be looking at moving forward but that's what the aliases are for now i'm actually linking a lot of the papers in my zotero with notes in obsidian even though the note isn't full it has an outline for me to fill in if i feel like i want to fill it in but i don't need to and the reason I've done that is it gives me an anchor point to actually use the reference um, in any of the pages that I'm making. And it gives me a way just to go, oh, okay, here, here's the paper, here's the reference, I can use the reference if I want, I can use the alias if I want, and I can go back to the paper if need be, but it also allows me to search for it in my obsidian easier because i could search for the paper but then i'd need to know what the paper's called because it was only a pdf file saved whereas if it is um in my obsidian i have the alias i have the reference and if you're searching through the reference it's much much easier um and when this becomes useful is when i go through uh and add papers in and I want to go, mm, I want to link this paper. I can link the paper because I can just do a search for the reference. If the reference is already in some of my some of my workbooks and sometimes I reference a paper, then two or three months later I come across the paper, then I explore the paper and I didn't realize that I'd referenced it before. When I just go through the paper, I, so I, I take in the reference of the paper, put it in search and I search for it. If it comes up with two or three other pages, I'm like, oh, why is it in that page? Oh, I've already referenced it, and then I can make the connection. And that is useful when those pages are in my Obsidian. So that's how I've changed that. Um, I will be exploring Logsick uh, at some point, probably today, and having a look, but I, I, I'm not a big fan of it. So we will see. But yeah, do, do let me know what, what your thinking is about some of the, the, the thoughts, some of the, the, the concepts brought up today. Let me know on Twitter. Um, and uh, uh, I will see you guys. Well, you, you will listen to me all next week. Maybe see you on YouTube.